Welcome to Four Questions. I'm here with Nick Cheeseman, Professor of Democracy at the University of Birmingham, and we are going to discuss his brilliant and exciting new book um, about democracy and institutions in Africa. So, Nick, tell me, how have we misunderstood African politics? Well, one of the things that the book really tries to argue is that historically we have not focused enough on the way in which formal rules so we're talking about constitutions, about legal frameworks, about economic frameworks, you know, systems of land rights and so on, actually structure um, politics in Africa. And the reason for this, of course, is that if you look at what's happened to Africa over the last 50, 60 years, we've usually focused on the breakdown of institutions, right? People have talked about failed states, elections that get rigged. Uh, constitutions that get ignored, presidents that have unlimited power. So the focus on Africa in the 70s and 80s was often on individuals. Let's look at presidents, let's look at patrimonialism, let's look at ethnicity. These are what we might think of as informal institutions. And we focus not really on the formal side. Now, it's important not to say that this is true of everyone. There have been strong people working on formal institutions all the way through. But what we argue in the book is that actually we've significantly underestimated the importance of formal institutions in loads of ways, both visible and invisible. And that actually this kind of institutionless school, that Africa can be treated as if it doesn't have institutions, is really dangerous. Because what that does is it says, and you can see this in you know classic works like Chabal and Delors, Africa works and so on, mm. it sort of says you can treat Africa as if it's basically a set of cultural relations. It's a set of subterranean social networks. Mm. It's individual, it's personal. It's not about institutional structures which don't constrain people. And the point of the book is to say, actually if you understand Africa in that way, you miss out on so much of what is actually happening in contemporary politics. Okay, so can you give me an example of the way in which formal institutions matter? I think there's a really great example in the book which is provided by uh, Catherine Boone from the LSE mm. who basically demonstrates that the system of land rights you have and the way in which land is governed um, actually shapes so many different outcomes, not only the potential for things like political violence, but also patterns of economic development in the country. So right down to the very foundation of what is the system of land distribution and ownership actually shapes in a really profound way that. Leonardo Ariola, who's an excellent researcher at UCE Berkeley, he has a really nice argument which is based on a book that he's published about the impact of financial systems on democratization. One of the things he points out is that the more you see a decentralization and liberalization amongst the financial system, the more opposition parties can gain access to finance uh, through, for example, loans and credit, the more they're likely to grow and form more effective alliances and therefore the more likely they are to be able to effectively challenge ruling parties. So the competitiveness of elections and the success of opposition movements has a relationship to the business sector and the structure of finance, which itself can be traced to some extent back to colonial legacies of institution, economic and political institutions. So all the way through the book we have chapters that actually demonstrate the short and long-term importance of formal structures. And I think one of the things we tend to do in African politics is we go, ah, because the president can break that rule and not get punished for it, that means that rules do not structure behaviour, that therefore we can treat this as this institutionless environment. And actually what we're showing is that not just on an everyday basis in terms of is the president going to follow term limits or not, but on a much more foundational basis in terms of the way in which economies and political systems evolve over time, these foundational rules are actually really important.
Okay, I know you want to tell me about term limits. Well, term limits, of course, are. <laughs> I should add that uh, Nick's favourite thing is term limits. <laughs> term limits are one of my favourite things, absolutely. Well, we have. Uh, I've done a lot of work on term limits, and you know, trying to argue the importance of term limits. But in the book, we have a great paper by Daniel Posner and Daniel Young. Uh, where they sort of update an analysis they previously did in Journal of Democracy. And one of the key points that they make is that while, you know, often what hogs the, the headlines on term limits is the ability of a president to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. So we've seen, you know, we're in East Africa, we're close to Rwanda and Uganda, where we've seen presidents remove term limits. And so the narrative is often that these don't constrain people. Right. But actually, if you look at all the term limits, the, all the times that presidents have come up to a presidential term limit, so most presidential term limits in Africa for listeners are two terms of about four or five years, most of the time when they've been actually uh, completed, the president has either stood down or tried to get a third term and failed. Oh, right. It's actually a minority of cases in which presidents have been able to remove them. So the actual average figures show us that term limits are more likely to be respected than not. And they also show something really interesting, which is that when presidents are respected by the first president that cuts, so when term limits are respected by the first president who comes up to the limit, the next president yeah. almost always does the same. Mm. So there's an implication there that presidents might not only be effective at removing presidents, but have significant precedent-setting effects for the future. And now, I guess there's a conjunction there between formal and informal rules. So when one person respects the formal rule, which is an informal cultural practice, right, then that sets expectations and, le and leads to formal rules being more likely to be respected in the future. Absolutely. And what I try and do in the conclusion to the book is bring together the lessons about formal institutions from all the different chapters with the informal institutional analysis that we've seen developed in Latin America by people by Stephen Levetsky um, and others, which is basically about the way in which democratization is shaped by the interaction between the formal and the informal so what you were just saying mm. you have to have supportive informal rules to formal processes unless you have that those formal processes are never going to bed in but the formal rules also help to shape the informal processes so what we need to be looking at and the conclusion to the book sets out a new research agenda and a framework for how we can do this is to think about how the informal and the formal interact when do they support each other mm. that's when we're going to get democratic yeah. consolidation when do they undermine each other that's when democracy is going to be really hard to build. But isn't if formal rules matter and rules are set historically, isn't doesn't that set us up for path dependency? Like how do we how do we change things if the rules govern what's going on to a large extent? Well the rules govern what's going on to a probabilistic degree, right? Mm -hmm. So we're not talking about strict causal laws. No, no, sure. So neither, you know, Catherine Boone or Leonardo Ariola, who I was talking about earlier, or any of the other chapters argue that when the rules are like this, this always happens. But it's when the rules are like this, these things tend to happen, which makes these things more likely. Um, all of the chapters recognize that there are outliers, counterexamples. Mm -hmm. And of course many of the chapters tell a slightly different story. So no. In all of the chapters, we see that formal institutions are important to some degree. The extent to which they're important and the extent to which they're important across the continent varies. So we can see that when it comes to internal political party rules, that's one of the places in which we've seen the least institutionalization. Still, the informal seems to dominate over the formal. The police, 
we see similar issues, right? Very difficult to see strong sort of institutionalization within the police. Um, other sort of informal, uh, formal institutions that we look at, like the legislature, again, it's hard to see massive strengthening of the legislature across Africa. Um, but what we do see mm. is that even in those cases in which formal rules remain weak, they they're still part of the picture and we still need to factor them in to get a full understanding of how politics actually operates on the continent. Okay, so formal rules matter, though they're not deterministic. So what leads to the strengthening of formal rules? Apart from, as you were saying, when they are respected, then they're sub mm -hmm. Is there anything else apart from formal rules being respected? I mean, h how can formal rules be strengthened? Well, so one thing to say is about the way in which informal processes uh, can actually support the formal rules, mm. right? So think about somewhere like Nigeria, where actually at the national level we have quite a lot of winner-takes-all politics and a history of high levels of competition over state power and, of course, political violence in the past. One of the key institutions that has strengthened, I think, multi-party politics in Nigeria is not formal, it's not in the constitution, it's the informal idea of zoning. Right? The idea that power should rotate between the north and the south, mm. that leaders should be arranged around presidential elections to allow that power rotation. Mm. So effectively it's a form of power sharing that operates over time mm. rather than everyone being in the same government. Mm. And the idea that within parties you should have um, you know, a leader of one ethnicity or region followed by a, re a leader of another so that you get even if people in those communities don't necessarily see these people as their leaders because they might see them yeah. as actually belonging to a rival mm. party you have a distribution of people from across the country in the party system and in government and in government over time now that becomes institutionalized in a formal way when that's written into party constitutions yes. and the state constitution yes. Yes. which it has been in, in some cases in nigeria but that's an informal rule that was developed within the political elite to manage the political pressures that democratization would bring that sustained and allowed democracy to bed in in terms of elections. And lots of people argue for that, like more of a power sharing, less of a Westminster winner-takes-all model. Exactly. So, so you can see ways in which in lots of different countries informal norms have mm. either helped democracy to become more consolidated or undermined it. So that's one set of things. Mm. There's also then, of course, another set of factors. We know that formal institutions are very vulnerable and weak when they're not supported um, by political leaders, when there's no political will, and also though when we have weak civil society and weak opposition mm. parties. So, you know, when a you know, if we if we go backwards, yes, it's true that the second president is more likely to respect term limits when the first president yes. did. Why did the first president respect term yeah. limits? One of the things that uh, Posner and Young find is that, you know, the president is more likely to try and break presidential term limits when there's oil. Mm. This makes sense, right? Mm. Oil insulates mm -hmm. you from domestic and international yes. pressure. Just probably more benefit, personal benefit to being in government when you've got an oil economy. So we see certain factors that make it more or less likely. We think it's probably more likely that the ruling party, the leader, has to respect term limits when, for example, there's some division within the ruling party because maybe other factions of the party want to have a president themselves and so don't want the ruling party uh, leader to get a third or a fourth term, when the opposition party is stronger and can call it out, when civil society is stronger. So if we look at Zambia under President Chaluba, when he wanted a third term in 2001, there was an oasis forum formed yes. and that brought together trade unions, it brought together mm. churches, it brought together uh, opposition parties, there was support from international donors, there was a great wealth of support for uh, actually maintaining term limits but Chaluba also faced a lot of opposition within his own party from other factions who didn't want him to be president mm. for life and all of that made it impossible 
him then respecting term limits then leads to a lot more pressure on future presidents to also respect term limits. So we have the fusion of informal processes, formal factors, setting a precedent which then becomes an informal norm supporting a formal norm. Right, so if, so do you think if we were trying to, so for both international observers and domestic groups pushing for democratization, do you think they should try to focus more on strengthening the formal rules or try to focus more on sort of strengthening civil society and broader processes of accountability? I think the reality, and this is why it's so hard to strengthen democracy, mm. is that you have to do both at the same time. Mm. Um, if you continually allow the formal rules to be broken without ever coming in and speaking out on that, then of course you undermine the system yes. and you undermine the precedents mm. that we were just talking about. At the same time, we have to know, and this has been described in lots of different ways, the electoral mm. fallacy, mm. you know, whatever, that the rules that we set down on paper in the constitution only matter if coalitions within the country are going to fight for them to be enforced. Yeah, yeah. That can happen in lots of different ways. So, you know, it might be that civil society mobilise really hard behind a law that allows, for example, media freedom, campaigning to force the government to respect it. But that's only going to work if the judiciary are going to uphold the complaint, which might go to a high court or to a mm. Supreme Court. So you need all of those different interlocking sectors to actually work well for that formal institution to actually be supported. So one of the things I think we do see is that in countries where two or three different bits of the system start to work better, they reinforce each other and that web starts to make democracy stronger over time mm. because the judiciary will speak out against the abuse of the constitution. Yes. Civil society will speak out if they see something that they think needs to be taken to the judiciary. Mm. On the other hand, in those countries in which we regularly see the formal institutions being disregarded, broken, mm. attacked, yeah. civil society is weak, we get the other cycle, mm. a downward cycle, yes. in which actually nobody thinks it's worth going to court or going to the mm. police because you're not going to get justice. In yes. fact, you might actually get abused by the police or the courts yes. yourself, you might be asked for a bribe. And so one of the things that the book is not arguing is that formal institutions matter everywhere and matter equally. It's trying to tease out when do they matter more and when do they matter and less. And this comes back to my point about norm perception. So if people see institu formal institutions and rules being upheld, if they expect the government to be tolerant, responsive and capable, if they expect civil society to call the government out and be successful, if they see successful mobilisation when term limits aren't upheld, then they'll be more confident that other people will rise up with them, then they're more confident to pursue that next time. So I guess there's the interaction in how experience of formal rules then shapes people's beliefs and expectations for the future, shaping how their, their future engagement. Absolutely, and the other way around, right? If a president expects people to rise up, they may be more careful yeah. in what they yeah, do. Yeah. Um, so that's what you need to do. You need to shape popular expectations mm. of what's going to happen around How elections. the hell do you do that? Well, it's very difficult, right? And you can't do it in a vacuum. You can't no. persuade people of something that's not really true. Mm. So we can't persuade people in a country where elections have already been rigged, always been rigged, that they're going to be free and fair the next time to get more voter turnout. I think what you have to do is you have to work out what are the key drivers of that. Now, for example, in an electoral context, one of the big things that I've seen in survey evidence that improves public confidence in the electoral process and perhaps then affects turnout, although it's not a straight relationship, mm. is changing of the commission, new individuals being come in who have a credible background, and the introduction of election technology. Now, the problem, of course, is that that only works for so long as those individuals remain credible and the technology functions. 
in Kenya, we're sitting in Nairobi now, every time there's been a revamp of the Electoral Commission, every time there's been the introduction of new technology, public confidence in the IEBC or the Electoral Commission, whatever it's called at the time, is shot up. Early. Only to plummet the day after the election when things start to fall apart and the opposition starts to make accusations mm. about election rigging. Um, but you can see in that process little things that you can do that are very symbolic that can start to build public trust. Yeah. Um, now obviously you know another thing that happened in the recent Kenyan election the Supreme Court nullifying the election that created a great stir across Africa mm. people were then saying hang on electoral you know judiciaries can mm. step out to mm. defend democracy and then we see all of a sudden maybe a popular excitement about going to vote mm. but then of course Odinga decided to boycott the repeat election there was a lot of controversy mm. over that election there was a perception that the judiciary itself was being intimidated by the ruling party and so that initial kind of positive perception has been forced back a bit mm. By, so I think it's a constant battle right, yes. between steps forward and steps back. And I always think of democracy in Kenya along those lines. It's sometimes two steps bo yeah. forward and one step mm. back, two steps forward and three steps back. Mm. If you keep inching forwards over mm. the years, you do build a stronger system where the different parts of it are more capable of restraining each other. Mm. And that in time is the foundation for being able to build those more uh, robust formal institutions yeah. but it's going to be a long process mm. and there are going to be bits of the formal system that work much better than others so a great example for that is we have made much more progress on presidential term limits than we have on corruption right right um, if you, you know what I was saying a moment ago we know that presidential term limits are respected more often than they're not that is not true of anti-corruption drives no, in no. terms of their success and the reasons for that are obvious you know when it comes to term limits there's so many people who have an interest in term limits being respected the opposition civil society donors factions of the ruling party that want to have a presidential candidate themselves when it comes to corruption sadly a lot of the people can be bought off into corrupt networks mm. a lot of the people who you might want to rely on to help you the judiciary opposition MPs ruling party MPs might themselves be in the corrupt networks and so it's much harder to align the incentives in a really strong coalition to get that to work so you know you're not going to be able to move the needle as quickly on all types of formal yeah, institutional yeah, change and one of the things you might see and I think we see this in Ghana and I've written a piece for the Washington Post on this in the past is a consolidation of electoral norms a strengthening of the electoral system under Afari Jan when he was the chair of the electoral commission better processes at the same time as an institutionalization of clientelism and vote buying and corruption right? and one of the things we find when we do a survey in Ghana is that people there are as willing to accept those practices as anywhere else we've done a survey in Africa. Mm. So having high quality elections and having transfers of power and having a better quality democracy has not removed mm. those informal practices, rather they've become embedded. Yeah. And so I think that's one of the lessons we really need to learn, that formal institutions can embed both positive and negative informal norms from the point of view of long-term consolidation of democracy. Not all good things go together. Yeah, absolutely. So the key point is that we need to focus on people's expectations of formal rules, recognise that these are slow, incremental and iterative processes occurring in different ways in different domains. Absolutely. And they can have knock-on effects. So mm. one of the most interesting things that I've found in my last sort of five, ten years of working on African politics is the impact of term limits. So ignore for a second the question of whether or not the term limit is respected. When term limits are respected, we see a dramatic impact on electoral outcomes. So in elections in which the president stands, so you've got a sitting president, he's contesting the election, he's running, that election is won by the president 88% of the time on average in Africa. 
when they're not allowed to stand because they've been term limited out mm. so the ruling party has to pick a successor mm. it drops to 50 50. wow so you go from basically a one in ten chance of the opposition winning to a one in two chance of the opposition winning when you have to have an election when there is no sitting president i told you he really liked term limits i love term limits <laughs> and the reasons for that make a lot of sense right parties in africa are very focused um are very top he top heavy. Yeah, yeah very executive is strong. Le legislative yeah. is weak. Exactly, and so within the parties, what we see is everybody wants to be the president. Mm. People aren't willing to take second best. They know the president is going to be the key figure, especially if they're the ruling party. Mm. And so the competition to succeed the president and be the next candidate often splits the party in two. We mm. see a faction join the opposition, mm. and that faction is often what enables the opposition to get over the line and win. We also see that outgoing presidents who no longer have to worry about their own careers being on the line because they've accepted term limits are less willing to send in the troops to yeah. defend the position of their newcomer especially where they don't like who's been selected to to replace them and that means that often we see elections where the president is standing down actually being more democratic have better respect for civil liberties than those when the president is actually contesting so this creates this window of opportunity for the opposition now the opposition doesn't always take it for lots mm -hmm. of reasons they're underfunded mm. um, they might be internally divided and all mm. the rest but 50% chance of winning an election is much better than a 10% sure. chance of winning an election and what we tend to see is where that chance comes up and it's combined with a united opposition and an economically difficult time for the government mm. that's where a transfer of power becomes more likely so term limits and other formal institutions can have these knock-on effects now this is not to say that transfers of power are wonderful right there's been loads of countries where we've had a transfer of power and the new government has been worse than the last government. Sure. So we shouldn't reify... Maybe think about PF and Zambia exactly. and the same practices continuing. Well, and if you go back to, you know, Frederick Chaluba beating uh, Kenneth Kaunda yep. in the early 1990s in Zambia, you know, Chaluba in many ways was more corrupt and more venal mm -hmm. than the Kaunda mm -hmm. regime was. So, exactly, you can't necessarily get a better government. Like we said, it's about the institutions, not the people in them. Exactly. So, but it is really interesting that you can have these really significant knock-on effects mm. of formal institutions. And this comes back to the point of the book, that if we try and take this more kind of cultural approach which ignores formal institutions mm. and treats Africa as simply being about webs of personal relationships, mm. we miss the way in which formal institutions in a growing number of states actually structure the way that politics works. Okay, message heard, loud and clear. Okay, if you enjoyed that, then check out the book, Institutions and Democracy, edited by Professor Nick Cheeseman. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alice.